parfait. Okay, here we are, the penultimate Italian 90 podcast. I'm trying to get excited about this one, lads. It's it's always hard to get excited for a third place playoff. Do you feel they should be quashed? Do you feel they, they have any any right to be in the tournament or should everyone just go home after? I love the third place playoff. I think yeah. it's great. It's, it's unique. It is absolutely pointless in the sense that both teams get bronze medals anyway. Mm. But uh, I suppose there is a prestige to finishing third. But I, yeah, I, I just like having that little pause before the before the final because everything's been so intense and you know so do or die. And I like they that are usually little... a bit damp though, aren't they? Like for instance, the England and the uh, Belgium. They already of... played in the group stages as yeah. well. And they, didn't they didn't they basically forfeit the first game as well because they were both true anyway? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. The one I the one I liked was remember um, Uruguay and Germany in what was it two thousand and. 2010 that was a good one but I think that was just because Uruguay and Germany were really up for it but generally teams don't seem to be mm. I know in 2006 it was it was um, kind of an opportunity for Germany to kind of sign off with their fans as well so it was, it was really nice I think Turlock's on to something there though it shouldn't be just two bronze medals it should be like you know what I mean there should be a, a, an award and then maybe I wouldn't say a punishment I was going to say a punishment but finishing fourth in the World Cup doesn't deserve a punishment you should get a spot in the Europa League <laughs> yeah well I, on that then can we at least all agree that the third place playoff in the what's the new competition again the new mm, U- Nations League yeah can we say can we at least agree that that's pointless well it's kind of I, I suppose because isn't there only four teams in the final tournament it's kind of, I suppose it's a bit of a I think you're, you're already there to... you're all in one venue aren't you so you might as well yeah. play there used to be a third place game in the FA Cup um which was completely pointless. But anyway, we strayed a long way from Bari for this game. But just to say that there is a little bit of, there is something on this game in the sense that obviously um, Lineker <coughs> and uh, Skilacci are both somewhat in the hunt for the, the golden boots. So that's, uh, that's something to watch. It's also interesting that um, Italy seemed to make a few changes, but the one player who doesn't get it back into the team is Carnavalli, who's not even on the bench. Whereas Carlo Ancelotti, who will... Um, Later, Revere as a as a managerial mind does come into the team. Yeah, in fairness, Ancelotti's been carrying a knock. Uh, Carnavali just clearly wasn't up to it in the first couple of games, and he's he's very pissed off that not being included in the sixteen, and um, because he you know he correctly, as it turns out, uh, says that he he doesn't feel he'll get another chance with the national team, so he would have liked to have signed off. And um, Viali is left out of the sixteen as well, which is um, interpreted as a bit of a snub. Uh, and Viali, um, I don't know if his view on this has changed in subsequent years, but in the run-up to this game, he talks about how you know, the World Cup may have been a great experience for everyone else, but it's been a very um, disappointing one for him. The thing is, in this game, as we covered Italy's striking options, they couldn't have even, even if they changed all their players and, and didn't play all of the strikers who'd already had a game, they probably still couldn't fit everybody in. Was Mancini in there as well? Mm-hmm. Mancini yeah, was... Uh, Ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. For such a classy player, it's it's interesting. We we've spoken awful lot about the Ireland's kind of attacking options and the fact that you know Mick Byrne and Frank Stapleton didn't get anywhere near the team. But you know Italy had a plethora of forward options, and 
I think that's probably why we were so surprised that Carnival started this, the tournament as first choice. But then again, I suppose um, with Scalaccia and Baggio coming back into the team, England needed to be, um, well, even though they made a few changes of their own, you can see that our, our, our friend Mark Wright still keeps his place in the team, still vital to Bobby Robson's defensive effort right till the end. It's interesting that Pierce and Stuart Pierce and Chris Waddle are dropped for this game because it's said explicitly in the papers that you know that's to kind of I suppose protect them mentally after the trauma of missing those penalties, which kind of surprised me a bit. Uh, football wasn't wasn't all that enlightened about these things, you know, back thirty years ago. But it was certainly felt that the the hangover from the from the trauma of that semi-final was uh, too much to expose them to another game in such a short order. I wouldn't have thought Stuart Pearce at the least would be kind of uh, the sort of person who would need a, need a game off to recover. He'd be the sort of person who goes out there and gets back on the horse. Yeah, but you mentioned hangover there. Am I wrong in thinking that there might be a sense that there's a liter- maybe a more literal hangover that they could be dealing with after... No, uh, Brian Robson was gone at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there are a few changes for England. Tony Dorigo, actually, speaking to Stuart Pearce, comes in at left-back for, again... Tony Dorigo? Exactly, yeah. Uh, a player who was kind of torn in many different directions internationally, but was, I think, given his Italian roots... I've heard him talk about how much this playoff meant to him, actually, to get on the pitch in the World Cup in Italy. So, yeah, if no one else, it mm. certainly meant something to him. Mm. Um, Gary Stevens back in the, in, the, in the team for the first time since the opening game as well. Yep, Gary Stevens comes in, Trevor Stevens comes in, and the much maligned Steve McMahon comes in at <laughs> central midfield. Is that a dig at me? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, a, it's a, an acknowledgement of reality, I think. <laughs> Another dig at Steve McMahon. But yeah, we, we have to talk about the kind of world-class shithousery of Peter Shilton, who <laughs> the plan was, some people say the plan was to give Chris Woods a game um, in, in this match. Uh, that was Bobby Robson's idea. Or even to give Chris Woods and Dave Besant a half each to let them experience the World Cup. And Robson came to his captain, Peter Shilton, with that idea and Peter Shilton told him to get fucked he was playing <laughs> um, which he had absolutely nothing to play for at this point he was already after one of the earlier games he'd already become the world's most capped footballer but uh, yeah he wasn't uh, showing Fair. the kind of doggedness that would characterise his political opinions in later years he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't for budging in Dave Beston's case at least I'm, I'm guessing he was probably still by the pool and wasn't aware that they were still in the World Cup <laughs> Italy did still go with Walter Zenga so they didn't give um, they didn't give a game to Tacconi yeah uh, quite a good thing as well speaking of people of goalkeepers with very exotic and dodgy political leanings Tacconi is one of them as, as we discovered in subsequent years um yeah, what are the odds of two of them, <laughs> two of them being involved in the same in the same World Cup? Uh, I suppose when you have Gascoigne and and Baggio on the team, maybe they're just jealous of right wingers. <laughs> um, yeah, Bjerkovod comes into the Italian team as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think this game probably meant a bit more to Italy than it did to England, um, and obviously Scalacci wanted to wanted to really cement that role as the as the star of the World Cup in many ways by, by securing the golden boot. Um, the game itself... is Sorry, just before you get into it, is there anything in, in Barry as a venue? Because I know it's, it was used for um, an Ireland uh, World Cup qualifier in 2009 as well, but like um, it wouldn't strike me as the most, um, I don't know, glamorous or maybe most um, 
even most illustrious of, of Italian venues. So it's a very is there anything story. in that? Uh, mm. Yeah, um, Bari was, let's just say, particularly well politically connected at this time. Um, a lot of the kind of political class in Bari, and I think the ecclesiastical class, if you can put it that way as well, some of the senior uh, Catholic clerics in the city were very well connected politically. And that's one of the reasons that it did it profited so much out of this World Cup. And uh, yeah, there's questions as to how some of the money that was allocated to the city and the stadium was ultimately spent. But I think we can we can yeah safely say that that's at least part of the reason that this relatively prestigious game, you know, Italy's last last appearance um, in the yeah. tournament, as it turned out, was was played at that fairly um, unglamorous venue. Is there a bit of a geographical balancing going on as well, considering, you know, Napoli is probably the only other major city in the South that, that is hosting games? Mm. Possibly, yeah. Can I just say, if you do want a little bit more on that, I'm sure you can find one of the many times uh, Gab Marcotti has gone off on one about these individuals who are well-connected <laughs> on uh, various, I don't know, podcasts or, or otherwise. And uh, you can you can hear a sort of, an unvarnished uh, attack on on some of the scandals led to these. Is it the owner is brothers or something to that effect? Does it related to the owners of Barry or something to that effect? There's a bishop, there's a politician, that there's something else, and uh, it's a lovely it's a lovely link up as to how Barry get this outrageously uh, done up stadium for a team in Serie B. Yeah, and well, the game the game it plays host to is. It's not the best game of the World Cup. It's not the most meaningful game of the World Cup, but this is probably the funniest game of the World Cup. Um, the, the first half is kind of a non-event. Um, Scalacci has a, has a decent chance to get that kind of much-coveted sixth goal after, um, after Ciro Ferrara has a, has a shot off the post after 20 minutes. Uh, Shilton's nowhere near it. Um, but it really kind of comes to life in the last 20 minutes when just after Nicola Berti has been brought on for Italy um, and Steve McMahon, the kind of established master of disasters, is, is, is at the centre of this, although it's not his fault. He plays a really simple back pass to um, Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton then relinquishes the ball, apparently not realising that Roberto Baggio is right behind him. Baggio creeps up on him um, and kind of gets a, gets a touch on it. I think Shilton brings him down. This should be a, a penalty yeah. before anything else. But it falls to Schilacci. Schilacci nutmegs Des Walker and uh, then plays a very, a very unselfish, given that he was in, you know, he was a few yards from goal and looking for that sixth goal. He plays a, a nice little inside of the boot pass to Baggio. Baggio dribbles it across the goal line. <laughs> Paul Parker... You really need to watch this goal to see Paul Parker's role in it. Um, he, he ends up on his arse and kind of chasing Baggio across the goal line, almost like you kind of play with a puppy on, on his hands and knees. Um, but Baggio manages to evade him anyway and finishes, uh, finishes nicely to the, to the top, to the t roof of the net um, from a few yards out with quite a few players on the line. Am I, am I wrong in saying that Baggio was offside from that, that pass, Muscolacci? I think arguably, yeah, because the goalkeeper was out, but there might have been a... I, he was maybe level with the two defenders. Can I, just, can I just make the point that... Is this what Peter Shilton's up to? Is he, is he 
taking the piss to this extent where he's like, I'll, you know, he's just huh. showing the sub keepers, I'll, I'll pick myself and I'll fucking throw one in as well. And there's nothing you can do about it. I'm here for the next 10, 15. To be fair, his competitor is Dave Besson, who broke his foot by dropping a, a jar of salad cream on it. You're saying Woods as well. Like, he's literally like, oh, don't care. I'm just going to take the piss out of this game. He still won't get in here. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, England's kind of go for broke at that point. Mark Wright and the unfortunate Steve McMahon get, get hooked immediately. Um, and in their place are sent on Chris Waddle and Neil Webb for his first touch, for his first um, taste of World Cup action. A lot of people, I, I would imagine, forgot he was in the squad, but he gets on for the last... 20 minutes, and with nine minutes to go, England equalised. Now, we had a discussion much earlier in the tournament about whether a headed goal could be a contender for a goal of the tournament. This, If there is one at this World Cup, it's probably this from David Platt. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely cross from the left from Tony Dorigo, and Platt gets up oof, good spot, 16 yards out, um, and absolutely... I mean, he always had a kind of forehead like a mallet, but he absolutely connects with... <laughs> incredible force with this one from a long way out and, and you know flies past Senga with the, with the power of you know regular shots struck with the struck with the foot from a kind of equivalent distance still um, scratchy against Austria for me yeah for the build-up but yeah for for the headed finish I think this is this is an incredible goal by, by David Platt and, and his third of the competition again not a very heralded player coming into the tournament unbelievably the rules call for extra time at this point <laughs> Um, fortunately, that's that's uh, averted when Sklachi is played in through the middle. Um, Paul Parker falls over. Rather, he, he he's penalised for tripping Sklachi, but actually he kind of falls backwards, and Sklachi falls over him while trying to stay on his feet. Uh, I've never seen a player be so you know when a player, particularly an Italian player in the box, be so pissed off about winning a penalty because mm. I think he really felt he was, he was in for a tap-in. Mm. Um, but yeah, Schilacci, obviously this is the moment that everyone's been waiting for. This is potentially the sixth goal that secures the, the golden boot, boot for him. Liam Brady's up. eyes peeled. <laughs> uh, yeah, bears a certain resemblance to that title-winning penalty by Liam Brady all those years earlier. He steps up. Rolls it and rolls it kind of into the right hand side of the goal, not dead central. But I want people to watch this, watch this penalty back because Shilton only starts to dive after he's seen the ball going in the opposite direction to the direction he dives in. If you've ever seen football kind of recreated in a movie or a TV show where there's a predetermined outcome, it's almost like a yeah, Peter Shilton is acting in one of those because he seems to know that Scalacci is destined to score and he, he doesn't even make a token effort to go in the right direction um, when, he's, when he's clearly telegraphed which way he's putting it to the extent of actually hitting the ball. You know, he's no chance of saving it, but the ball is already past him by the, almost by the time he decides to dive in the wrong directions. We talked, about, we talked about the English game, the Netflix series earlier, and it's very much the same thing. You know, there's... I think I wrote a review of it an extra time and I put in some sort of line that there's no shot that the um, that the uh, Darwin keeper can't jump out of the way of because it's just, it's so unrealistic the way it is. But in, in that particular case, I think Shilton was actually moving to one side. I just think that he probably couldn't change directions because he's 
you know, he's an old, old man at this point. I, I bet you he's staring the subkeepers. He's not, his eye contact yeah. hasn't broken. He's like, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to fall forward. Chris, Chris. Yeah, not even, look at a Chris Wood just falls over to the side. Look, look what I'm doing, Chris. You're not getting there. <laughs> Dave Besson making a salad cream sandwich on the side. <laughs> That's the only plausible explanation I've heard for that passage of play. And, and an even more implausible one comes up in stoppage time when the ball is a wide a wide ball is played in from the right to Nicola Berti. Now, at this point, Berti, as the ball is played, has four defenders and the goalkeeper between him and the goal. He runs in on the kind of blind side of the English defence, loops a header around Peter Shilton, who, again, looks as though he's literally tethered to the goal line and gets kind of half... He can't even fall over properly in the right direction. <laughs> and the ball goes into the net. And then, astonishingly, the goal is ruled out for the most baffling offside flag I think I have ever seen. <laughs> it's it's probably the worst decision I've ever seen in in any context. You sent it to us earlier on today and, and after watching it a few times it just becomes so painfully obvious that like maybe this guy is the sub goalkeeper of linesman. Do you know what I mean? Like, he was along for the ride. He never thought he was going to even become a linesman and then they're like, can you go for the third place playoff? He, yeah, but even even so, this is the this is the competition of subkeepers stepping up. Whether it's whether it's Cameroon or Argentina, where where were the linesmen in this? Oh, I think uh, Tur- Turlock was saying was saying earlier that there was a freeze frame at that moment, and there's four players between Bertie and the uh, and the and the actual um, the offside line. But it's uh, like it's I know the offside rules were a little bit different back then, but I don't think they were that different. Look, you've tweeted it out anyway, so people do just want to, if people are listening to this and, and don't quite understand how unbelievably bad it was, they can go and check your Twitter. To be fair, I think um, in general in the tournament, the referees, or the, the linesmen, sorry, seem to be particularly kind of um, cautious about offsides. There was definitely two or three occasions in the Ireland-Italy game where Ireland very much got the benefit of the doubt when it looked like Italy players were onside. Yeah, I think so. Uh, John Aldridge had a kind of had a borderline one against the Netherlands as well. But yeah, that's that's a fortunately I think for the for the Algerian linesman that's the last action of the match. I don't think there's any ceremony to be done afterwards because I think that the medals have already been awarded before the game. Was that kind of the end of when teams would just be coupled together by whoever was ready? Kind of a um, you know French ref, Algerian linesman, Swiss Swiss linesman. Like um, they they started kind of working with teams after that, didn't they? They did, and there would generally tend to be some logic in terms of all the officials sharing, a, if not a language, then at least a kind of lingua franca that they all spoke. But yeah, I, I don't know anything about the Algerian linesman. It may well have been a it may well have been a, a blot in an otherwise impeccable career. But uh, yeah, that's the end of it. Italy finished third. England finished fourth. I think, in a way, creditable achievements based on on pre-tournament expectations but the Italian tournament performances I think you'd say as well well yeah although the Italians had managed to you know win all bar one of their Mm. all bar one of their games so I think on form the Italians or based on the kind of fever pitch that the Italy had reached I think the Italians are finished their tournament in much more downbeat mood than the English who are still smarting a bit after the semi but uh very proud I think we've had a chance to look over the whole tournament I don't think I don't know if you lads would agree, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said that Italy and England were the third and fourth best teams in the tournament. 
Um, well, I, I don't know. know. I think they're, I mean, I would possibly have Cameroon before one of them. But I think, yeah, I think they were, they were up there. I'd have Cameroon ahead of England. Yugoslavia, anyway. maybe. Yugoslavia, definitely. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I, I think I think Cameroon just for, I mean, we, we kind of touched on it in the Germany game, how unorthodox they were and how little um, people knew about them and how to stop them maybe more so than these teams who had played each other relatively recently. I mean, Cameroon are obviously the team to take away from this tournament, but I think I think it's a bit harsh kind of. I mean, tournaments are down to these fine margins and at the end of the day, each, each of these teams has gotten there. I look back at both of these teams and think, as you said, we've listed through the, the Italian strikers and the, the unbelievable quality they have right throughout the team. And you go through that English team and, and you know, this is probably a, thing, a team that English teams since have aspired to and not been able to reach. So I think it's, I don't know, I think, I, I think it's probably fair enough. I don't know, just kind of going on, you know, the group stages when England were very much, you know, against Ireland. They, they probably still should have won the game, but they were very underwhelming and they had to basically change their entire system and sort of, you know, sit in and, and get a get a lucky draw. Well, maybe not lucky, but certainly earn a draw against, a, you know, a fairly mundane Dutch side. So I don't think they really impressed at any point in the tournament. I this don't know. I think that's harsh. I think you, at the end of the day, you look at uh, people often say you grow into it in the group stages a bit. Some teams do that, and I think England probably did that. And at the, I suppose the Belgium game is one where they really came to the fore. They switched things up when they were struggling against Cameroon, and only for a few bad penalties. I mean, they started off relatively well against Germany, and and if it you know could have really gone kind of the other way, and and we'd be looking at. Maybe we'd be downplaying how good they were if they'd have gone all the way you, to the You final. can disagree with me, but I think they were outplayed by Belgium. I know they won the game. They were outplayed by Cameroon. Again, I know they won the game. I think the only team that they probably... The only two teams that they can say that they outplayed were Ireland and Egypt. Saying that, though, Dave, I mean, Argentina are in the final, and we could definitely make a case for them not being in the top five or six teams of this tournament. So, Yeah, you've gone one step further now. <laughs> We know Bobby Robson has gone after this uh, and ends up being replaced by Graham Taylor and, and I suppose all of that is for, for another day. But let's talk about Italy's legacy after this point. The hosts gone out. They've got third place. Vicini, I, I, I don't know why in my head he, he was gone after this, but he's not, is he? He sticks around another, another campaign. He hangs on until 91, yeah. And uh, just, just on Bobby Robson, uh, I, I actually only realised this because of a question on the chase. You no, know, who wants to be a millionaire the other day? that um, he's the longest-serving England manager for a long time. He actually had eight years, which I, I, I don't remember. I, I thought it was Sven Joran Eriksson was the answer, but it was actually Bobby Robson. You say Vicini's gone in 91 then, so like, obviously he struggles. He, he doesn't get them there in 92. I mean, mm. could they have seen that coming in any capacity, considering... I mean, I, mean, I would argue that he's bungled a lot through, through this tournament. Well, I think what we can see from this tournament is that they have a very talented team with some very talented strikers. And there is a, an argument they weren't using the best of their of their capabilities. But I always thought that Vicini was never, you know, considering that they, they did replace him with Saki two years later, you know, the, the European Cup winning manager with, with AC Milan. They'd go on to have, you know, Trapattoni and Lippi and all these, you know, hugely celebrated European managers. Vicini seems to be kind of a... I don't know, an underwhelming choice and somebody who didn't, despite the fact that he came third in the World Cup, he doesn't seem to have maybe got the maximum out of this team. Kind of the, the Brian Kerr of Italy. He just, his, his, all his success really had been with Italian um, underage national teams. So I suppose he was seen as someone who had a, a grasp of tournament football. Maybe that was, the, that was his appeal. 
So what? But yeah, he was already senior enough by 1990. Is the, the what's the Italian version of? He's gone and snotted himself. Before we move on, then for the final tomorrow, what's the legacy of this World Cup for Italy? Like, because as you said, it's it's this is I think, isn't it? Yeah, probably because this isn't Baggio's World Cup, and this isn't um, Vicini is not remembered much for it. Is it purely Scalacci? I don't think so. It has to be just for the fact that from where he came from, one year at Juventus and all of a sudden he's the, the top striker in the world, for, at least for six weeks. He, he doesn't sustain those heights. And it's just yeah. kind of a, it's a singular story, I think. Scalacci will only ever get one, one additional goal for the national team. Um, he scored seven goals for the national team and six of them were at the World Cup. But yeah, that said, I mean, if this team were just looked, looked back on as kind of really disappointing underachieving losers then I don't think Scalacci's cameo would would be remembered as fondly as it is I think I think this is a as I said over the years I think you know the intensity of feeling the fact that it happened in Italy that there were so many close games that it ended so in a footballing sense tragically rather is rather operatic and rather in keeping with the with the Italian um, psyche and the Italian aesthetic so I, I think it is it is remembered as a particularly meaningful World Cup in Italy. The financial legacy of the World Cup is a different matter entirely. Mm. Well, there you I, go. I just think it's interesting that, you know, with so many people maybe in that squad underperforming, like Viali, you know, the setup against Austria aside, Carnavale obviously didn't do much. Baggio was kind of in and out. He had a couple of, a couple of decent games, maybe against Ireland included. But, you know, with, with the attacking talent in the squad really not, particularly stepping up. Giannini may be accepted. The fact that Scalacci was able to come from nowhere and really take that mantle and, and take it upon himself, I think was a, it's quite a remarkable story. It is. And he's actually, you know, the more I've watched back this tournament, it's kind of incredible that, you know, he, he's not, he, he wasn't just, I know Napoleon said he'd rather have a, a lucky general than a good one, but he wasn't just a lucky one. He was, for these four weeks, he was the best striker in the world on, on every every conceivable um, metric. He was everywhere. His, technically, he was outstanding, which was something he didn't have a particular reputation for. He was excellent in link-up play. Um, he was incredibly sharp, and he looked like someone who, you know, he, he didn't look like a flash in the pan at this stage. He looked like mm-hmm. someone who was going to stay at that level, um, barring injury and so forth, for, for a very long time. So, yeah, it's just extraordinary that World Cups can kind of capture lightning in a bottle like that. Is, is there a parallel with that? The only one I can kind of, that comes to mind at the moment is maybe, you know, Asimov Gian in 2010, where he just looked like a complete world beater. And, you know, he, he kind of had a bit of a time after that, but sort of faded away. In Italy, they say Paolo Rossi, but I think he was always a higher profile player. Um, I mean, there was... <laughs> Rossi was only low profile because he was banned for two years. Yeah. But there was obviously the, the kind of recurrent case of Miroslav Kloza, who kind of just only, only came out of hibernation for World Cups, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, we better wrap this one up then. Uh, it's gotten on to nearly half an hour. Let's tell you, tomorrow we've got uh, the last ever podcast we're going to do this, the Italia 90 final West Germany versus Argentina. Smith Weeks. Questa birra è molto buona. Italians? Yes, I'm Giovanni, and this is my friend, Giorgio. I'm Ray Houghton, and this is my friend, Dave O'Leary. Sorry, I forget to introduce my other friend, Toto, Toto Schillaci. Who are these? 
Thank you very much. Smithings. Are you going for a pint? 